Hi, and welcome to the Inside Out Security Show. I'm your host, Cindy Ng, and joined by security practitioners Killian Engler, Chris Kaiser, and Mike Buckby. So what's really interesting to me lately is when people make analogies with tech to actual physical things. So for instance, someone on Twitter asked Ann Kavakian, the former commissioner of Ontario, who conceived of embedding privacy by design at every stage of your innovation or technology, where she asked, okay, do you think that searching someone's electronic devices is the same as searching a person's luggage when they're traveling? And Anne replied, of course, there should be limits to this type of search. And I wonder how you're synthesizing the difference between digitized item versus physical. And naturally, it makes a whole lot of logical sense, but there seems to be a line that needs to be drawn. She's absolutely right. There is a huge difference there. For one, the contents of one's luggage are at best a very small snapshot of you know, a person, you know, they may have certain things you can learn about them from that, but it's very limited. You know, bags only so big with a phone and digital content. It's infinitely larger. You know, you can have your entire music collection, your entire literature collection, a history of websites you've been to, a history of locations you've been to. Just the amount of information that can be fit into one small device like that is infinitely larger. And a lot of it is inherently private. You know, when you go through say TSA or something like that, you know that they're going to be able to see the exact contents of your physical bag. And people plan for that. You know, you leave certain things at home if you don't want them to be looked at or if you know that it's going to cause a problem as you try and pass through. With your phone, it's not exactly the same thing. You know, there's a lot of stuff that there should be no expectation that someone would learn that, you know, the TSA agent shouldn't know that you were at this bar on Tuesday or that you just communicated with this person from high school on Wednesday. There's a limit. There should be a limit. And and I 100% agree with the idea that they're not the same thing whatsoever. And I honestly think it's a huge invasion of privacy to have an expectation that someone should search your device as you're traveling. This is Killian. I'll um, set my personal opinion aside and, and open this up for debate. So Chris, bringing up your point, have people given up that expectation of privacy if they've posted publicly or semi-publicly about all of their activities online? What's to stop the you know TSA agent from popping open Facebook on their laptop and searching there, given the fairly lax privacy controls a lot of people implement on their you know profile and post publicly? Sure. I can address that. I'll agree that if somebody intentionally goes and shares that information with the world publicly, then sure, that's they've given up the right to privacy because it's been their intention to to make it public. Whereas if you were to say open up the Google app and you know if you have a phone that Google Maps, for instance, has a history of your location, that's not public information. That's information that Google may know about you, that you have control over whether you delete it or keep it or whatever, but you didn't say, hey, everyone, take a look at every location I've been to in the past month or so. Take a look at my, there's no public Google page for where Chris has been, unless Chris is to go on, say, what was the name of the site? Swarm. Yeah, they, there's a limit there. There's a, a line drawn of what I choose to share and what I don't choose to share. Hey, this is Mike. I think, you know, what's been discussed so far is perhaps more philosophical. I think there's just a practical aspect to this, which is that when you're giving up the right for your luggage to be searched, it's with an intent. The intent to be safe, you know, on the plane, you know, post 9-11, you know, there, there were planes that were hijacked. I mean, like, this is a real thing that happened. And so, you know, it's hard to see what exactly exactly is being searched for in the digital sense. And it's really hard to draw links between, oh, these things happened and then therefore, you know, we shouldn't let you 
on this plane. And so that's the one practical aspect. And the other practical aspect is with everything just living in the cloud, you know, you can imagine, you know, getting a new phone, walking up to the TSA, they check it, there's nothing on it, walking out the other side and then logging in and all your stuff just swarms down onto the phone and you're back in business with, you know, nothing on it. So it seems both a, a waste of time and effort as well as just, I think, a, an emphasis put on the wrong area. Now, Mike, I'll, I'll play devil's advocate once again here too. Do you think that you're giving more credit than is deserved to people? Um, do you think this is designed to catch that 0.1% of sophisticated bad guys? Or do you think this is designed to catch the general populace who doesn't think much about this? You know, where, where do you think the effectiveness lies? First off, Killian's declined to have video today. So for all we know, he probably is dressed like a devil uh, being an advocate at home. <laughs> That's just how I picture him. <laughs> This could be a voice modulator. We're not sure it's of, even Killian, you know, are we? This could be it's a, me, uh, a sophisticated. Yeah. So I'm trying to trying to come back from that image. <laughs> <laughs> I think that there is a very ill-defined role for TSA in general that, you know, and this has come out in other cases where, you know, TSA, they're really about, you know, keeping, you know, the, the transport safe, you know, and all the different forms and how everything else works. They are not charged with, say, you know, enforcing trade policy or, you know, other criminal things. So if they see something, they should do something. And it gets to be a real weird situation when those things come up. And this sort of feels like that, that this is ill-defined enough what their role and responsibilities and what they're searching for is that there's too much gray area. There's too much area where if something's personally objectable to someone or this gets into an area that, you know, people weren't expecting and, you know, a traveler does something, you know, reacts in a bad way, then they get in trouble. Like It's hard to, again, it's hard to know the intent and the rules around this. As we talk about privacy by design, digitized items. We're approaching the one-year anniversary of GDPR and their growing concerns with the spotlight on Ireland because they're the lead regulators that they're not enforcing the law. And even before GDPR became law, people were concerned with how do you enforce something like this. And so my immediate reaction is this is the perfect example of why InfoSec is considered a compliance industry or job. And it's not like I can nominate Killian to take charge of the GDPR and put everyone in their place. What are your thoughts as to the tension between data privacy, enforcing it, and the politics? That's sort of the underlying tone it feels like. Well, that's why I'm wearing my uh, devil's outfit here with my little red horns and my poker because everybody loves GDPR so much and I'm just waiting to give out some fines. <laughs> you know, in the article, I think they made a big point is, you know, the tech industry did score a gigantic win by regionalizing where like enforcement would take place. And as soon as you marry some type of financial incentive, like for Ireland, you know, having the jobs or having the headquarters there, you know, and, and all of the tax money and, and other breaks that companies there. As soon as you marry that together with an enforcement, it's kind of a natural human process to not want to bite the hand that feeds you. I feel like it's a loophole in, in many senses, but I still think that the rest of the EU can probably take action even above and beyond it. I mean, they mentioned that Germany could no longer ban Facebook from certain operations because uh, Ireland let them skid on the enforcement, but there's got to be other actions they could take against them if they decided to violate it because it's, again, it's not just, it's the EU, not just Ireland and friends. I think we should probably preface all this by saying we are not lawyers. <laughs> and 
I think what this really gets down to is a legal maneuvering on both the parts of the European government and these large multinational tech firms. And I think in terms of the public perception, I think there is a perception of, well, if the GDPR is not, you know, passing out giant fines, it's not working. And I don't think that's the case. I think there's, it's really done a tremendous job of just getting people to think about, and by people, I mostly mean companies and a lot of case, you know, marketing firms and everyone else who's dealing with PPI to really think about, do we need to keep this data? Can we get rid of it? And it's really changed the conversation on that separate from any actions. Then there's a whole level of, I'm not sure what the proper legal term is, but let's call them suggestions. That if there is a complaint and you know an investigation from one of the uh, regional authorities, if you go ahead and then fix things as someone who's been investigated, then there's not a fine. That they just want things fixed, which strikes me as very pragmatic and what we would want. That we don't want necessarily big flashy fines to be put out, you know, to mom and pop places. And what we really want is everyone to take this seriously and everyone to you know safeguard data the best they can. And then at the very tippy top of all this, we have the situation like Facebook, where they're embroiled is probably the best word in all sorts of actions across the EU. I know France also, Sino, their authority has taken action against them. And so I don't know if it's exactly so much a situation of choosing the least restrictive, the different geographic areas and going there as much as, um, you know, all these things are happening in coordination. There is a deliberate effort not to just pummel companies from every single country and that in general, even without the big fines, I, I think this really has, you know, pushed for change in a positive direction with data retention and privacy. And now I'm going to put on my little halo so I can fight Killian. <laughs> Here's another example, or you can say conspiracy, of how people think that YouTube worked to kill off uh, Internet Explorer 6. So the article brought us back to 2009 when Google acquired YouTube and there was still a bit of mistrust and people who still had old access could bypass the new process of code reviews and testing. And when the legacy YouTube workers decided to show a banner to Internet Explorer 6 users that YouTube would phase out support for their browser soon and should use the other ones instead. Curious, what do you think about this conspiracy? The, the message that they had to change their browser, you know, the, the, some of the concerns were around which browser they listed first as the replacement, which people thought at first was, you know, they were pushing Chrome a little bit hard because it was a Google product. It turns out that was actually randomized, so, you know, no issue there. This isn't strike me as that strange, this whole scenario. Like, I get why you'd want to phase out old browsers. I mean, the same exact thing happened with uh, Flash. Nobody uses Flash anymore, and for very good reason. There were security problems. It was a legacy you know, product. Over time, these things definitely need to either be improved or, or go away. I mean, we, we have the same kind of mindset with a lot of you know server technologies. Um, you know, old versions of Windows Server, you probably shouldn't be using them anymore because the people who make them, they're not going to patch them, update them, fix them, and there can be real security issues with that. I don't know. I, I I don't see a huge issue with how this was done. Maybe I read the uh, article wrong, but it's an interesting way to make the change, you know, kind of pushing a little bit to have a site with that much clout be instrumental or like a driving force to why somebody would need to change their browser. I don't know. What, what do you guys think about this? I'm old. I'm an old person. I've been a web developer for a long time. So I remember these days, I remember having to deal with IE6 and what a giant pain it was. So from, from that view, this seems incredible 
incredible to me, and I'm so thankful for them for doing this. Like even more than just like, oh yeah, it was okay. No, this was great. Good for these <laughs> people. How I look at it now is very much along the same lines of like, hey, you should do your system updates. You should do your system updates to update from the old versions of things that are broken and have known issues. And all across the board at every level of the stack, you know, this is one of the key things that individuals listening to this and that we can do is that, you know, stop putting off the system updates and just apply them. And to me, you know, IE6 was that written on just a massive scale where it was this really old buggy browser. It came by default with the operating system. And so it was a pain for system administrators to update these in mass. And so it never got updated, but it was holding everything back and making everything less secure. And so putting a little message on the page that says like, hey, we're eventually not going to be supporting this. You should update to, you know, IE8 or one of the other browsers. I think this is only good. Yeah, I will say I like the fact that they gave them ample time to do it too. They didn't just say, hey, this is broken officially forever now. Deal with it. They had lead time. That's, that's at least considerate. In uh, another shocking twist, I will completely agree with um, Mike's assessment here. Even, you know, as a security engineer, you know, in 2008, 2009, we were still battling IE6. There were certain things that we wanted to do, but we couldn't make certain changes to, to some web apps and things like that because of the fear of breaking the dude that had IE6 still and refused to upgrade. And eventually they made the, the decision that the risk simply was not worth it to keep maintaining, you know, insecure practices, you know, I mean, even going back to like old encryption standards, the browser couldn't support, you know, modern encryption technology and things like that. It, it wasn't worth the risk. So I think it did nothing but good to echo Mike in terms of putting that up there. And again, it was a gentle encouragement to kind of just get the word out to people. It was not really disruptive. It was not malicious. It probably did a greater benefit to security than a lot of things. It stressed out the corporate lawyers. <laughs> ah, but it helped their PR team. So this is kind of a follow on to this, because I think if there's a danger in this, it's looking back and saying like, oh, well, this was all great. We're, we're happy that was in the past. We don't have to worry about things like that anymore. Because I do think this was right at the time when people were coming to grips with like, oh, the always internet connected, you know, life cycle of everything. <laughs> and that there's going to be continual updates to everything. And that's how it works. So I actually had a friend who was in a similar situation to this recently, which is that he is one of the co-founders of a podcast hosting service. And he found out that older versions of Android have a TLS, which is like the SSL search stuff for connections, that it doesn't match up with the new TLS 1.3. So there's a lot of security benefits to TLS 1.3, but as you can imagine, trying to get people on old Android phones to update to new ones, like that's a real big commitment. And that's more than just switching a browser. You basically have to get a new phone. Like I'd be interested to hear, you know, this is a rubber meets the road decision today. Like what should they do? Would they be okay if they slid in like a little extra 30 second announcement that said like, hey, you happen to be using an Android phone that's outdated security, you should consider upgrading. Like, would that be okay and ethical or would that be something that would be out of bounds? I think that's one of those things that comes back to context as well. What are they transmitting over the TLS connection? I mean, if it's credentials and things like that, I think it would probably be beneficial and, and ethical to slide that in and just let them know. Again, not penalizing them, but it's, you know, my guess is 
they, you know, a lot of people running the older phones might just not even recognize it. So having a gentle reminder might not be a terrible thing. And it's ultimately for their benefit. So there are some cyber criminals who hosted phishing kits on GitHub and pretty much crossed a huge boundary by using GitHub's free repository to deliver their victims the GitHub domains. And it's pretty clever, but abuse of something that's supposed to be a positive resource. What were your reactions? So this is Mike. I'm going to talk only because I think I use uh, GitHub probably more than other people on the call. I think this is a general issue with almost every online service that does hosting of pages. And, you know, the, the core issue here is that browsers treat different domains differently for security. So that if you're on the same domain as another site like Mike.GitHub.io or, you know, Killian.GitHub.io, those are two different sites. But because, you know, they're both on GitHub.io, you know, they're treated slightly differently. And so cookie policies get into that, whether cookies can cross subdomains, you know, there's SEO and, you know, all sorts of other stuff that gets into that. And so we see this as a general issue on GitHub, but also, you know, AWS S3, they recently had a big announcement about how they're changing some of their paths and their ID system to address issues like this. So I don't know how much of an issue this is specifically with GitHub. It's not the case where like GitHub was broken and this is a supply chain attack so much as it is. They allow free hosting and any free host gets all sorts of crazy stuff put on it. And it sort of has the official looking blessing of GitHub because of how the domains were set up. Yeah, when I read this article, I thought, oh, GitHub, that's the code repository that Mike likes. Yeah, that's their official tagline now. They're like, love it. Got Mike's picture on there. I mean, you know, but I... I thought this highlighted an interesting issue. I think, again, Mike is correct in terms of how, how trusting we can be for certain domains and certain security, but it also kind of shows the weakness inherent in kind of this absolute type of like blocking or acceptance technology. The old, you know, just blacklist these known bad sites and whitelist the ones that, you know, yeah, those are pretty good. I mean, not to say that we shouldn't go without it, but if that's the only line of defense, it's not sufficient anymore. The bad guys have long caught on to this. You know, any, any site, as Mike mentioned, that hosts any type of data is potentially subject to this kind of thing. And it's incumbent upon us to just take additional steps to validate it, as opposed to just saying, yeah, that, that looks pretty good. We'll accept the, the whatever comes off of this site. You know what? I This is maybe a challenge for us on the call right now, but I've always found that having like a crisp name for things helps so much in talking about them and educating people. What should we call this? Like same domain attacks where it's, you know, it's the same domain. So people think like, oh, well, it's GitHub and they want to, you know, redo something. Should we call it something? Something else recognize domain attacks because it's it's something that's you know because people would recognize that or it's a good question i like that name jacking yeah i'm just picturing uh mike inserting a big metal spike into his head to you know jack into the net has a good cyberpunk uh, sort of angle to it so <laughs> Potentially, you know, maybe. I don't judge how you jack into the net. Don't name jack me, Killian. If you haven't figured out the theme of this show by now, it's really about how we're all advancing, whether through regulations, through business acquisitions, through the goodwill that people offer, and then the bad guys are right there with us. And the last story we have for today is, for me, the saddest one, where a baby 
baby's first word is Alexa, not mama or daddy, but Alexa. Even when she wakes up, she calls out Alexa, not her mommy or daddy. And do we have a name for that? I mean, Amazon's really, they've personified this device that everybody loves to use. And then the baby learns that Alexa knows everything. What should we name this phenomenon? We, we could ask Alexa. <laughs> baby jacking? Is that, is that <laughs> off the table? It sounds like theft to me. Let's, <laughs> let's cut that out of the episode. <laughs> Let's definitely cut that out of the episode. It's a brainstorming session and no idea is a bad idea. I mean, I actually like that name. You might have to spell it differently. One of my daughter's friends is named Alexa. And when she comes over to the house, it causes all sorts of issues as everything goes nuts. And she, the actual little girl, Alexa, who comes over, she hates it. She thinks it's the worst thing ever that these little like hockey puck things light up when people say her name. Like that's hers and Amazon stole it. So maybe name jacking. Oh, that's hard. It's just a sad phenomenon. I mean, just to think about how much the parents must use, you know, Alexa, if that's been repeated enough times for the the baby to know. See, I, I don't I don't think that's sad because we use Alexa so much in the house. Like, especially with the kids. Like it's always the timer for like, oh, you can play on the computer for like five more minutes. Alexa set a timer. You know, you can do this. Alexa, you know, you can play music. Like it's so useful to us. So uh, my my kids' first words were a bow and I think apple. So it's not like this is that much worse. Can I ask you how many times you call out for Apple during a given day? I think we're trying to feed the one child a lot of apples. Ah, that okay. was a favorite. So that's a motivating one. And the other was I called my son bro. Like, oh, hey, baby bro. And I'd like pick him up. And then he can't speak that great. So he thought I was saying Bo. So he called me Bo for the first like, you know. Either that or we just confirmed Mike is an Apple fanboy. We should listen to him. <laughs> he, was, he was trash talking Android earlier. Yeah, these iPhones. Just sleep with this, baby. Hey, Mike, do we have a tool of the week? Yes. All right. We've been talking a lot about names. G-H-I-D-R has everyone heard of Jidra? Jidra? Might be Gidra? Gidra? What do you say, Killian? And now, I mean, maybe for context, did this tool or thing ever fight Godzilla? No, but I feel like maybe this should be a tie-in because the movie's coming out. It looks, their logo's a giant snake. So, Gidra, I think is what we settled on. This is a tool from the National Security Agency. It's a reverse engineering tool. So, it's actually a code repository, just like we're talking about GitHub, uh, that you can download, and it's for doing reverse engineering work on executables, it's a bunch of different tools, and I thought this was really interesting in part because it does come from the NSA. So it's an interesting thing to pull down and work with, a bunch of different scripts and things, and I would love to see us actually have some more content on it eventually. But uh, that's the tool for the week, something interesting to play with for the weekend, Ghidra. Yes, and they just ask that you please install it on all of your devices and computers with admin credentials. Alexa, install Ghidra. (laughs) Thanks to Mike Buckby, Killian Engler, Chris Kaiser, and all our listeners for joining us today. If you enjoyed our show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It'll help people find us. Thanks. Thanks. Bye. Thanks, everyone. Thank you.